The Guardian. You're listening to the Futurescape Short Stories podcast, in which writers imagine what life will be like in the year 2025. The project is an exciting collaboration between Sony and Forum for the Future. It encourages people to think more deeply about the possibilities for our future. In this edition, we feature Leslie Locko reading her story, 2025. London, 25th of May, 2025. An early summer's evening, a slim but heavily pregnant dark-haired woman sat at the window, looking out onto the garden. Birds were still chirping outside as the light slowly leached from the coral-coloured sky. It had been a warm spring. The roses bordering the path to the garden shed were already full and thickly perfumed. For the third year running, the English summer promised to be long and hot. Stacy Smalls and Hugo Hood cordially invite you to celebrate their marriage on Saturday, 7th June 2025, at St Mary's Church, Oldwood, Herefordshire. Stacy Smalls turned the thick, heavily embossed card carefully over in her hands. Her fingers gently traced the shiny raised lettering, delighting in the unfamiliar feel of paper, ink and card. She smiled. It had been her mum's idea to send out proper invitations, as she called them, the old-fashioned way. Together they'd tracked down what seemed to be the last printer in the British Isles able to supply them, a man in Peebles, somewhere near Edinburgh. It had cost them an arm and a leg, but holding them now it was worth it. She couldn't remember the last time she'd touched anything quite so lovely and solid. The edges were faintly crinkled, dusted with gold. She felt a sudden prick of tears. She was getting married, for the first time, at 49. Lovely, aren't they? Her mother's voice. She turned and looked up. Beautiful, she murmured, smiling. She could hardly believe it was already here. It was to be a small wedding, 50 guests, a mixture of his friends and hers. And Stacy's father certainly wasn't invited. Ailey, Hugo's 16-year-old daughter from his first marriage, was the only bridesmaid. She'd been in a tizzy of excitement ever since Hugo had let it slip that he and Stacy were finally tying the knot. On account of the baby, he'd explained, a touch sheepishly, Stacy thought, amused. To Stacy's surprise, the other person whose excitement matched Ailey's was her mother's. Odd, not just because Stacy and Hugo had been together for over ten years, but because her own marriage to Stacy's father had so spectacularly broken down after thirty. Stacy couldn't imagine Margaret getting excited over anything, let alone a wedding. The divorce was five years old. There were days when it seemed like yesterday. At least that's how it seemed to Margaret. Worth it, if you ask me, Margaret said firmly. Hmm. And they spelled your name right, she added, peering over Stacy's shoulder. Stacy smiled again. S-T-A-C-I-E, not Stacy with a Y the way it was commonly spelled. She'd been correcting people since she was a child, which was quite a long time. You'd have thought she'd be tired of it by now, but she wasn't. Stacy Smalls. It was a funny name for a barrister, but it always got her a smile from the jury, which often helped. What do you think, Mum, she asked, looking up at her. Hugo Small sounds better than Hugo Hood, doesn't it? Her mother pulled a face. Don't tell me you're going to do that too, she asked in alarm. What? He can't change his name, Margaret protested. It doesn't seem right. Oh, Mum, Stacy only just managed not to roll her eyes. We've been through this a hundred times. I want the baby to have our name, the same name. It doesn't seem natural, Margaret sniffed. 
Stacy suppressed another irritated sigh. There were so many things that Margaret Smalls deemed unnatural these days that she was having a hard time keeping up. The baby was just one of them. At your age, had been Margaret's first shocked response. What's wrong with my age? You're nearly 50. So, you can have a baby at any age. It's not right. Mum, I thought you'd be pleased for me, Stacy said, both stung and bewildered. Her brother Toby had spectacularly failed to produce grandchildren. Surely the prospect of being a grandmother ought to have outweighed Margaret's curiously old-fashioned concerns. After all, she'd had Stacy when she was in her late 30s. In 1976, that was considered positively ancient for a first-time mother, or so Margaret had always said. It's just... just what? But Margaret had been unable to elaborate. Look, it's up to Hugo, Stacy said now, hoping her voice was firm. I'm not changing my name. I can't. I've got the chambers to think of. It'd be too confusing. Well, Margaret Harumph, don't say I didn't warn you. She sat down on the sofa opposite and picked up the remote. The giant TV screen flickered on and the show she'd been watching swam into view. She slipped on her headphones and disappeared into the ether. For someone who moaned daily about being bewildered by the modern world, Margaret had adapted remarkably well. She was addicted to talking books, a daily TV show that not only told people like Margaret what books were worth downloading, but read them out loud too. At 86, her eyesight was fading, and arthritis made holding the tablet difficult. Talking books was the perfect solution. Stacy glanced over at the silent screen. Was that really Davinda McCall? It was. Unbelievable. She hardly looked a day older than 40, and she had to be nearly 60 now. She grinned to herself. Her mother had it all wrong. Things were so much better for women nowadays, not worse. Aside from all the wonderful medical advances that people like her took for granted, there were all sorts of other benefits that made the job of being a woman so much easier. Stacy had had it easy as Margaret was only too quick to remind her. Things were different in her day. Margaret was a miner's daughter from Snaresborough and hadn't gone to university like Stacy and all her friends had. A miner? The thought made Stacy smile. It seemed like a job from another age, and it was. Burrowing under the earth to dig up its resources was unthinkable now. She'd never even seen a lump of coal. The very idea of it seemed, well, well, dirty. Energy was clean these days, literally. Wind, water, waves. Those gigantic, neat lines of white windmills that dotted the coast of England like a fence. It seemed a small price to pay for making sure no one ever had to go underground again. She'd never met her grandfather. He'd died before she was born. But Margaret often spoke of him, especially after all that business with her father. Her grandfather would never have done what Jack Smalls did. She looked over again at her mother, now completely lost in whatever book it was Davina was reading. Her mother had the widest reading tastes of anyone Stacy knew. Tolstoy, Turgenev, Grisham, Keyes, and pretty much everything in between. Born in 1939, on the eve of World War II, she'd always worked, despite never having had a proper profession like Stacy. Stacy and Toby were of the generation the newspapers called latchkey kids, letting themselves in after school, making their own tea or supper, as Margaret preferred to call it, doing their own homework. Margaret and Jack, determined to give their children all the opportunities they'd been denied, worked hard. It took two salaries and all the hours God sent to manage it. Private schools, a nice big house in Richmond with a big garden, and holidays in the sun twice a year. Stacy couldn't recall ever minding the fact that they didn't see their parents often. She didn't know anyone whose parents didn't both work. And in any case, she and Toby were in boarding school most of the year. She'd have liked to see more of Dad, perhaps, and now that everything was out in the open, and it was clear why she hadn't, she understood why her mother was still so bitter about it. But she tried to reassure Margaret. It was hard to miss something you'd never really had. Margaret wasn't convinced. 
Her glance fell on the little table beside her. Her ID was lying face down, blinking its lovely turquoise light. She picked it up and turned it over. Hugo's face slowly crystallised in front of her. She smiled. Hello, you, she said, placing a hand protectively on the high, hard mound of her stomach. How are you? Nackady laughed. How's baby? He could see her hand going round and round. Kicking away, how was the meeting? He was in Shanghai for the final handshake on a deal that he and his colleagues had been working on for almost two years. He often joked about the way business was done these days. He and Cliff could spend weeks and months talking to people on the other side of the world without ever seeing them in the flesh. They negotiated, argued, laughed, shouted and got to know one another for months on end. But when the deal was ready, everyone still insisted on a handshake, especially the Chinese. It appealed to their old-fashioned sense of etiquette, and since much of the world's economy depended on them, a trip to Shanghai or Beijing was usually the end result. Nearly there. One last signature and then we're done. He looked tired, she noticed. She pressed P. The screen widened to take in the panorama around him. Cliff was sitting next to him, fiddling with his own ID. He was probably talking to Janet, his wife. The hotel bar looked lovely, all twinkling lights, and in the distance, a shimmering pool that appeared to float out over the spectacularly lit-up city. It was nearly midnight in Shanghai. She tapped the screen again, and the statistics immediately flowed across it. 36 degrees Celsius, mostly cloudy, wind north at 14 miles per hour, humidity 70%. 36 degrees, she smiled. It's nearly midnight. You should have been here this afternoon. It was over 40. Well, it's pretty warm here. Mum's fallen asleep again. She can't take the heat. Did you check what the weather's going to be like on the 7th? No, I forgot. Hang on a minute. She quickly scrolled across to the calendar on her screen. Saturday, 7th of June, 2025. Sunrise, 04.45. Sunset, 21.14. Temperature, 24 degrees Celsius. Sunny. Wind southeast at 3 miles per hour. Humidity, 54%. She read the stats aloud. Sounds perfect, doesn't it? Well, that's why we chose it, remember? I know, I keep forgetting. Who's that next to Cliff, she asked. He'd put down his ID and was talking to a woman with long blonde hair, perched on the stool next to him. Perfume? Miss Dior. The sensors in Hugo's ID picked up the woman's scent, transmitting the data thousands of miles away to where Stacey sat, listening to her mother gently snore. Dunno, some woman he met yesterday. Oh? Now, now, Hugo laughed teasingly. Don't start, darling. I'd better go. We're up early tomorrow morning. Let me kiss the bump. She tilted the ID towards her stomach. Hurry up and come home, she said, listening to his loud mwah fill the air. We miss you. Miss you too, darling. I'll call you tomorrow. Love you. Me too. There was a soft ping as his image faded from the screen. She looked at the blank surface for a few seconds, fingers hovering. Should she? Pam, her best friend, had installed tracks on it only a couple of weeks ago. It was the most brilliant app, designed by a woman, of course. It used the phone's GPS system to track the owner's movements without them even being aware of it. And this was the really genius part, without the ID even being switched on. Tiny sensors could send back all sorts of data, the sound of conversation, body temperature, the scent of alcohol in the air, perfume, all the usual stuff that would tell you who someone was with, what they were doing, where they were, right down to the last centimetre. Gone were the days when you sat at home wondering where your partner was or who they were with, or indeed if they really were where they said they were. If tracks had been available when Jack Smalls had been around, well, things might have turned out differently. At least Margaret wouldn't have suffered the indignity of being lied to, and for nearly 20 years, too. And by her best friend. No wonder she was still so bitter. Another family for 20 years living on the other side of the city. Stacy's fingers were still itching to double-tap onto tracks. No, she shouldn't. She'd absolutely no reason to follow Hugo's movements or doubt him in any way. 
He'd always been scrupulously honest with her. She'd never mistrusted him, ever. She wasn't even sure why she'd let Pam install tracks in the first place. Sure, it wasn't just a case of snooping on your partner. Since its release a couple of years earlier, all sorts of things had changed, and for the better, too. People no longer just disappeared. The abduction and murder rates were down by more than 50%. Schoolchildren no longer went missing. All of them had the little tiny chip that adults installed on their IDs, tucked in neatly under the skin of their wrists, invisibly protecting them 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Kids could come and go in a way that was unheard of when Stacy and Toby were young. Parents no longer had to worry. Pretty soon, Stacy reflected, she'd be out of a job. She laughed dryly. Most of her cases involved fraud, not bodily harm. She couldn't remember the last time she defended a murder charge. Her mother gave one of those violent jerks that occur in the slippage between one stage of sleep and the next. Her arm trembled for a moment, then subsided. She murmured something indistinct, but her tone was soft. Stacy was overcome by an unexpected wave of tenderness for her ageing mother. It was funny, she thought to herself, suddenly pensive. In the end, in spite of all the sophisticated new technology at everyone's disposal, you still had to rely on your own instincts for all things human. Compassion, tenderness, trust. The Chinese were right. To close the deal, you had to shake hands, look the other person in the eye, stand shoulder to shoulder, together, not through a screen. It was the same with her and Hugo. One little tap on tracks and she'd be opening herself and him, without him knowing it which was worse, to a lifetime spent checking and double-checking, a lifetime of suspicion and doubt. Yes, tracks might have saved Margaret some of the pain of her husband's infidelity, but it wouldn't have saved the marriage. The end would have come sooner rather than later, that was all. She put her idea away from her, turning it face down once more. Her hand returned to her stomach. The baby, as if sensing her mood, gave her a gentle nudge. And then another one. I'm here. And then her right hand did something quite unexpected, unbidden. She brought it up to her chest, to the spot where she imagined her heart to be. That was the thing, wasn't it? Yes, everyone knew that the myogenic muscle known as the heart, responsible for pumping blood throughout the blood vessels by repeated rhythmic contractions, was found in all animals with a circulatory system. That was one way of describing it. But the heart was also the place and space of love, that intangible, elusive feeling that you couldn't see, hear, touch or taste, but you knew. She knew that she loved her mother. She knew she loved Hugo and their unborn child. She knew. An ID, despite its awesome, formidable powers, couldn't replace or teach her that. Love. What was that little ditty from the 60s that Margaret used to hum? It makes the world go round. Or was that Coke? She smiled, unable to remember. The Guardian's Sarah Crown spoke to Leslie about her story. So it's a relatively near future that you're talking about in this story, just 13 years hence, and all the technology that we see in it is fairly recognisably drawn out of the things that we have today. But if we think back 13 years from now to 1999, the direction that things have taken since then in terms of technological developments is astonishing. We couldn't have imagined it back in 1999. We've seen the rise of the internet, handheld devices and so forth. Isn't it more likely, therefore, that 2025 will actually look far less recognisable than it does in your story? I'm not sure. I mean, I think that the World Wide Web or the internet was such a major uh, kind of game changer. And I don't think that those sorts of things come along that, that often. I mean, if I think back to the way I work and sort of, you know, conduct my life today, that's been the biggest innovation. And, you know, things like cell phones, 
the sort of digital technology we use hasn't for me changed that much in the past sort of 10 years and that's what attracted me to the story because 13 years isn't 25 or 50 it's mm. sort of round the corner and so technology this digital technology you think is what is going to keep propelling us in in the direction that we're going yeah but i think that it'll come in leaps and starts but i don't think that there's been such huge changes every year year on year i think they've been small incremental and then suddenly something comes along. You touch in the story on issues, um, the other issues um, to do with where we might be in 2025, um, one of which is energy and the other of which is fertility. Beginning with energy, things appear to have been fairly neatly and smoothly moved onto a much more sustainable footing with wind and wave energy providing most of the power. It's optimistic. Is it too optimistic? Possibly. I mean, one of the things that does strike me whenever I move from Africa back into Europe is how much the kind of dirty side of energy seems to be done elsewhere. So the mining, the kind of old-fashioned ways of extracting fossil fuels or whatever seem to be done somewhere else, somewhere else mm. in the world. And I think that that's a trend that will continue. The dirty stuff gets shipped off somewhere else mm. and it allows other places to be quote-unquote clean. And, and I put that in inverted commas. But within the context of the story, within the confines of the story, what we see of technology and the future is feel-good. It's clean energy, incredibly efficient and connective technology. A lot of the issues that we see present now is, you know, fertility ending around the age of 40, health being threatened by disease or whatever, they, they appear to be things that have certainly moved to the background. Most science fiction that we read, and this is science fiction of a sort, is more threatening. Why do you think that is? I think it's a combination of things. I, mean, I think the one thing is is the fear of the unknown in a sense. And I think changes have been, on the one hand, rapid because Small innovations, if you like, have led to huge amounts of change. We emotionally haven't caught up with the speed at which things are changes. And that's sort of what interested me in this short story, was not so much the kind of nuts and bolts of what the future is going to look like, but actually how we're going to feel about mm. it. Partly being a writer, I'm always driven to the kind of human emotion behind anything. And I mm. guess that's what I was trying to get at in the story. How will we feel in 2025? What are our relationships going to be like? What do we think about things like love and fidelity and stability? That's what I'm, I'm more drawn to. And certainly at the end of the story, you, you end discussing those issues of, of, of emotion. And it seems to me that, that your, your sense of it is a positive one, is an optimistic one. And I wondered whether you thought that this was what, what is going to save us, what is going to get us through the next potentially quite difficult period of history is this sense of a shared humanity, I suppose. I think so. I mean, that's my very personal and very optimistic take on it because I think that, you know, despite these enormous technological changes, actually the way in which we think and feel about each other hasn't changed. 20, 30 years from now, maybe in, in a sense we'll have caught up with what the technology means to us emotionally. I don't think we're at that point yet and this in a sense is, is very much a plea for us not to forget that. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.